We'll remember that three visitors came to Abraham last week, one of whom was the Lord. And the promise was made that about the same time next year, Sarah would have a son, Isaac. This portion of Scripture that we're looking at tonight follows immediately on the heels of that portion of Scripture. So in Genesis 18 and verse 16, when we read the men set out from there, it's talking about those men, the men who had come to visit Abraham, who we know are angels of the Lord. The men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom, Genesis 18 and verse 16 tells us. Apparently the geographical layout was such that where they were was up on something of a plateau which overlooked the valley where the Dead Sea lies and Sodom was apparently toward one end of the Dead Sea. So it says that the, the men set out from there and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. So the scene has ended, the one scene has ended and another scene is beginning. And the narrator here shifts our focus away from Abraham's tent to Sodom, where we'll remember that Lot pitched his tent. So we're shifting here from Abraham's tent to Lot's tent. And what we see is that Lot has settled in a place that was very wicked. There was already a reputation surrounding Sodom way back in Genesis 13 and verse 13 we read this now the men of Sodom were wicked great sinners against the Lord so this is not the first time that Sodom comes up in the Genesis narrative we already should have in our minds a very wicked city so as the narrator shifts and transitions away from Abraham's tent to that place where Lot has pitched his tent the wickedness of Sodom should be in our minds. The Lord said in verse 17, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So there's two things going on here in this section. The Lord is saying, because of my relationship with Abraham, should I not share with him what I'm about to do? Elsewhere in Scripture, Abraham is called a friend of the Lord, a friend of God. And so that's the first thing that God says. Given my relationship with Abraham, my special relationship with Abraham, shouldn't I tell him what I'm about to do? Shouldn't I treat him as a friend, seeing that I have made him a friend? But then secondly, he says, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So it seems that there's going to be a function also of assistance to Abraham. When God tells Abraham what he's going to do, somehow it's going to assist him 
in commanding his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. So this is the context in which God now has a conversation with Abraham about what is about to happen. God says, since I've made him a friend, shouldn't I treat him like a friend? And since his job is to instruct his children concerning righteousness, this is going to be helpful for me to share with him. And so God says then in verse 20, and it's implied, God says this to Abraham, because Abraham responds to this statement. Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So in other words, he's telling Abraham here that the time of reckoning has come for Sodom and Gomorrah. God is going to investigate and presumably to mete out judgment. That's what is going on in this verse. And the Lord's thought process is represented to us Again, using that big word that we've touched before, anthropopathically, which means as if he had the, the, the passions or the rational processes or the internal mechanisms and responses of a man. God knows. God already knows what's going on with Sodom and Gomorrah. But he speaks in this way in order to be intelligible more intelligible to his creatures who are not like him he often in the scripture condescends to present himself as if he were like a man learning things investigating things seeing things deliberating about things thinking things in reality he does none of these things all things are open before him but this is what he's doing here in this section and he's also reassuring Abraham that he is going to mete out a just judgment. In other words, he's, what he's saying to Abraham is, I'm going to investigate. And after I have gathered the facts, then I will act. That's sort of a paraphrase of what God is saying here in this section. And God says that the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great. And their sin is very grave. This word outcry is a term that is used elsewhere in Scripture to denote injustice and suffering. It's a, almost a cry of desperation. It's almost a cry for justice. Um, these sorts of things. It's used of the Israelites crying out in their bondage in Egypt. This is the kind of word that is being used here. And often we think that the sin of Sodom is only or merely homosexuality. But what we read elsewhere in Scripture is this. God is rebuking the people of Jerusalem and He says this, in Ezekiel chapter 16, 
and verse 49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So what we see is that certainly homosexuality is in view. 100%. And in God's providence, we come to this narrative of Scripture on the day of the very first ever pride parade in Barbados. Clearly, homosexuality is part of what's going on here, even from the narrative that I just read you. When the men are knocking on the door, well, knocking is a polite word. Presumably they were banging on the door, tearing at the door, trying to open the door, trying to have sex with the men that came to stay overnight with Lot. And we read that the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, both young and old, all the people to the last man. So this wasn't like a few select persons. This was like the whole city was out to commit a homosexual gang rape. That's what's going on here in this passage. Right? So obviously, homosexuality is in view. As elsewhere, it's very clearly taught in Scripture that homosexuality is an abomination to the Lord. Obviously, rape is in view because rape is also very evil in God's sight. But we see from Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse 49, which I just read to you, that there was a whole system of selfishness, narcissism, lack of concern for the well-being of persons made in the image of God. Doubtless, not only was there an unwillingness to aid the poor and needy, but almost certainly... There was a desire to exploit the poor and the needy. Because if these people were willing to exploit in such crass ways the well-being of others for their own gratification, no doubt they would have done so in less crass ways. Doubtless they would have done so in more subtle ways as well. Taking advantage in business, etc., etc. Dealing unjustly and unfairly. With one another. So, this is what was going on in Sodom. Understanding then the wickedness of the Sodomites, it might appear strange that Abraham desires their preservation, but he does. We see clearly in this passage that God's intention is to destroy Sodom. But Abraham is less willing than God to see it happen. Let's consider this phenomenon in greater detail. We're going to look at Abraham's desire for both justice and salvation. But let's look first at Abraham's desire for salvation. As examining Abraham's desires in this order is going to help us, enable us to make a logical progression through his thinking and dialoguing with God in this section. Abraham clearly desires the preservation of the Sodomites from the threatened wrath of God. The whole city. And we see this because he's not just pleading for the preservation of the righteous, 
But he's actually pleading for the preservation of the whole city. He's saying, don't sweep away the city if there are 50 righteous persons there. Don't sweep away the city if there are 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. If there are 10 righteous persons there, don't sweep away the city. So Abraham obviously could have said, please extract the righteous from the city. Give the righteous a warning. Send them a prophet to proclaim the destruction of the city so that those who have ears to hear may hear and may come out of the city and be saved from the threatened wrath. Obviously, that is an option. It's not, it's not sort of unthinkable. We, couldn't, we can't reason that that thought never crossed Abraham's mind because it's a fairly obvious option, isn't it? When there is a situation of whether civil unrest or a natural disaster or something like this in another country where we might have loved ones traveling, we think immediately not how can we preserve the well-being of everybody, but we tend to think how can we extract our loved ones from that place. Right? The American government is very diligent to extract Americans when a situation breaks out in a foreign state. So, and this is not sort of, so this is not sort of a, a thought that we wouldn't normally think of, or we wouldn't think, oh, how creative. How creative to extract your loved ones. Or how creative to extract the citizens of this place. So, I don't think we can say Abraham, that thought never really crossed Abraham's mind. And in Abraham's mind, it had to be all or nothing. I think Abraham must have considered the possibility of extracting the righteous, but decided to plead with the Lord for the whole city anyway. To some extent, this is in step with God's heart, you know. we might have a concern for some of the lost. We might have a concern for our sons, our daughters. We might have a concern for our aunts and uncles and cousins who don't yet know Christ. We might have a concern for some of our friends who don't yet know Christ. But God has a concern for all persons. Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 11 reads like this. As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? There is obviously a sense, I think this is self-evident, there is obviously a sense in which God does not desire the salvation of all persons. That's evident from the fact that God does not save all persons. He is enthroned in heaven and He does all that He pleases. Psalm 115 and verse 3. 
Is the arm of the Lord too short? Is God unable to save? Is God unable to do in the lives of others what He has done in my life and in many of your lives? To take out the heart of stone and and put in the heart of flesh? Is He unable, He who said, let light shine out of darkness, to shine in the hearts of the unbelievers in order that they may see God's glory in the face of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? Is He unable? Clearly not. So in some sense, He is unwilling. I think that's self-evident. But what we need to understand is that, again, God presents this to us anthropopathically, speaking as if He was a man. We need to understand, though, that there's another sense in which He does desire the salvation of every person. We read explicitly here, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. In other words, I have pleasure in that. That the wicked turn from his way and live. And so the way that God represents himself to us, the type of language that God uses with us, is I would rather that all persons would repent and trust in Christ Jesus. Even as he hastens to add, but there is salvation in no one else. And even as God is not shy about his wrath and about his just judgment in other places, he represents it this way to us that he cares. And that he he isn't unconcerned. He isn't cavalier. He isn't calloused. He isn't apathetic about the destruction of the wicked. So again, we might, we might feel that desire for the lost to come to know Christ when the lost is our children, or when the lost is our grandparents, or when the lost is our friends or our other relatives, or our co-workers that we're with day by day. We might be burdened for them, but are you burdened, brothers and sisters, for all? Are you, are you burdened for those who are the wickedest persons in Barbados, whoever those may be, however you might evaluate that? Are you burdened for those who are engaged in trafficking drugs and persons? Are you burdened for those who are marching even now Right? Or, or I don't know if it's done by now, but I'm sure revelry will continue into the night. Are you burdened for those who are celebrating, expressing pride in that of which they should be ashamed? Are you burdened for these people? Or do you take pleasure in their death? Do you take pleasure in their condemnation and in their destruction? If the latter, your heart is so far from God's heart. If you don't care about those marching in the pride parade, if you read in the newspaper about gun violence and you think, well, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make a drink. Well, they should know better. Serves them right. It's their just desserts. If this is your reaction, your heart is so far from God's. Christ Jesus came into the world to seek 
and to save not the savable, not the desirable, not those who had some redeemable feature, not those who were not so bad, not those in whom he saw potential. Christ Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. God's heart, as he speaks of it in the scripture, is for the lost, is for the wicked, is for those who are far from him. Those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. God Himself tells us in the Scripture that He has concern for these people. And so, to some extent, Abraham's concern for Sodom, the whole city, is very right. There's something very good in what the way Abraham approaches God here in this passage. You realize that he's pleading for the men of the city who will the very next day attempt to gang rape a couple of angels. These are the people that Abraham is pleading for. And presumably he knows their wickedness. For their reputation was known throughout the region. But he pleads for them nevertheless. Abraham, like God, takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But this is where Abraham goes wrong. Abraham also clearly desires justice, which is not wrong. But he assumes that justice means not destroying Sodom for the sake of ten persons. Abraham assumes that if God destroys Sodom when there are ten righteous persons living in it, that God has done something unjust. And that's the line of thinking that Abraham pursues now as he prays to the Lord as he intercedes for the Sodomites. This is the tack that he takes. Far be it from you. Doesn't this sound impudent? Far be it from you, God. Far be it from you to do such a thing. To put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Abraham, first of all, assumes that God would be doing something unrighteous to put the righteous to a temporal death. But we read all throughout the pages of Scripture and throughout the pages of our church history books that the righteous often fare poorly in this life and often meet with what in earthly terms we might call an untimely death. Temporal death. Jesus, in Luke chapter 13, talks about an incident where a tower 
fell and killed 18 persons. And Jesus says, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus is saying this is not how it works. That those who are relatively righteous fare better than those who are relatively unrighteous. Jesus is teaching us in that section. That's not actually how it works. Think about it like this. Who can really claim that God has treated them worse than they deserve? Even, even the righteous. Those who are called righteous in Scripture. Are relatively righteous. Properly speaking. Righteous as compared to other persons. Not perfectly righteous and therefore undeserving of anything bad from God. So Abraham's first mistake is assuming that God would be doing something unjust in making a tower fall, so to speak, upon the righteous. But then Abraham is also assuming that there is The moral quality of the city is somehow improved by having a certain number of relatively righteous persons in it. So that God would be unrighteous since the overall quality of the city is not quite as bad because of these ten persons living in it. Therefore, it would be unrighteous to destroy the city for the sake of these ten persons. So... Abraham recognizes the justice of punishing the wicked, right? who we have to say, again, the relatively wicked, because as we'll see next week, even Lot does wicked things in chapter 19. So we're talking on a relative scale here. Abraham admits the justice of God in destroying the relatively wicked, but Abraham makes a couple of errors here in that he pleads the merits of the relatively righteous, for their own deliverance from this temporal judgment. And he pleads the merits of the relatively righteous for the deliverance of the city as a whole. And that the righteousness of those relatively righteous persons that live, that live in it render the city not so bad so as to deserve God's judgment. And right there is where Abraham goes wrong. His heart is right in that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He wants to see justice happen and he wants to see salvation happen. And so he pleads for salvation on the base of justice by which he means pleading the relative righteousness of ten persons in Sodom for the deliverance of Sodom. You see where he makes that error there. God would be just if every person was as righteous as Lot in Sodom. God would still be righteous to rain down fire and brimstone. You understand? If, if every person in Sodom was as righteous as Abraham, we couldn't call injustice. We couldn't cry foul if every person in Sodom was as righteous as Abraham. 
And yet God rained down fire and brimstone. This is what the rest of Scripture bears out. There is, properly speaking, none righteous. No, not one. And I'm fully aware that the New Testament calls Lot righteous. But this is, this is that distinction, again, that I highlight from time to time between speaking precisely or properly and speaking loosely or improperly. Righteous is a term often used to describe God's people who are trusting in the Messiah for their salvation, who are as best as they can turning away from their sins and trying to follow God's law. But even so, all of those persons are relatively righteous. So we need to understand that the baseline doesn't work the way that Abraham thinks it works. Where you become more relatively righteous than others and thereby you're spared from temporal suffering. That's not how things go, biblically. That's the error that Abraham makes here. He pleads the merits of the relatively righteous Sodomites in favor of their own preservation and in favor of others who are associated with them. For the sake of the relatively righteous, Abraham argues, please also not only spare them, but please also spare those who are relatively wicked for their sake on their merits. That's Abraham's line of thinking here. But you see that God goes along with the argument, you know. This is not God actually condoning Abraham's argument. But this is just another instance of God being gracious. You realize that God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. He doesn't wait until we get everything right before He answers our prayers. God doesn't deal with His people, nor even those who are not His people, here and now in this temporal life on the basis of strict justice. And so God treats bad people well. God answers illogical prayers in the affirmative. This is, this is how God rolls. This is how God works. He is gracious. He sends the rain and the sun on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. He is gracious with all of us to some extent. And He's gracious to us as Christians even as He's gracious with non-Christians. You see, it's not like we become Christians and all of a sudden now God deals with us on our merits. The merit of our prayers. The merit of our theology. The merit of our obedience. Before, of course, we, He couldn't deal with us on our merit because we didn't have merit then. But now we do. Because we're Christians. That's still not how it works, you know. God has to, of necessity, deal graciously with us, even as Christians, if He's going to deal with us at all. So God going along with Abraham's argument is actually not God condoning Abraham's argument, but God being gracious. It's also a manifestation of the wickedness of Sodom. Because in the next chapter, which we'll discuss more next week, when God destroys the city, the implication is 
There wasn't ten righteous people there. Which shows just how pervasive the evil of Sodom was. Uh, With Abraham, the patriarch, living not far away. With Abraham's own nephew living in their midst. In such close proximity to Yahweh, in that sense, nevertheless, they had gone so far off the rails that there was not even ten righteous persons in the city. So that is what is going on in this section. In this case, God gives justice, but not preservation to the wicked of Sodom. Just as very often God gives justice, but not salvation to the lost and perishing all around us. On the one hand, he says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But on the other hand, he's not unwilling to pour out his wrath upon the wicked. And so what we, what we understand is that God's desire for the salvation of sinners is not an ultimate thing. In other words, that's not sort of the non-negotiable that God is operating with. That all persons everywhere must be saved. It's for another day to talk more about resolving that tension and what that means. But clearly, even though God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, clearly God has decreed the death of the wicked. Clearly God causes the death of the wicked. He pours out temporal wrath. He pours out eternal wrath upon the wicked. And so clearly, what we see is that though there's, if we could speak anthropopathically again, clearly there's a reticence in God's heart, a hesitation in God's heart, a conflict, again speaking in anthropopathically, a conflict in God's heart, even as He meets out judgment. But he will mete out judgment at times. He does not always save. In this situation here, where Abraham intercedes for Sodom, is one of those situations where God does not save. He pulls Lot out, which we'll see next week and talk a little bit more about that. He pulls Lot out, being gracious to him. The Lord being merciful to him. Chapter 19 and verse 16 tells us, the man seized Lot and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him and brought him out and set him outside the city. Again, just to drive this point, the Lord being what to him? Merciful. The Lord being just to him? No. The Lord being merciful to him. So Abraham had pleaded with God, don't destroy Lot because that would be unjust. Genesis 19 tells us that God did not destroy Lot, not for justice sake, but for mercy's sake. And in fact, you see again that his mercy, 
when we read in chapter 19 and verse 29, so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. So again, God's rescue of Lot was not for Lot's sake, which means Lot didn't deserve to be rescued from Sodom, even though he was probably the only righteous person in the city. God dealt mercifully with him, not justly, mercifully with him. We're told that explicitly. He did not treat him as his sins deserve. And God dealt with him on the basis of another, namely Abraham. So it wasn't for Lot's own righteousness that God saved Lot from this destruction. So what this means is that with respect to Lot, God did deal mercifully with him. But he actually didn't even deal mercifully with him on the grounds that Abraham had asked God to spare Lot's life. But God dealt with Lot on different grounds. Abraham pleaded for Lot on the basis of justice. God dealt with Lot on the basis of mercy. You see? So what this means is actually Abraham's reasoning did not prevail with God. In any case, God destroyed the wicked, so clearly Abraham's pleading for the wicked was ineffectual. But God pleaded for Lot on the ground of justice. God did do what Abraham asked regarding Lot, but God did it on entirely different grounds. So in other words, it wasn't even that Lot's, that Abraham's intercession had been effectual in persuading God to do according to what he had asked. So what we see then was that Abraham's intercession was ineffectual. And God rained down fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, if there is no temporal hope for us on the basis of justice, in other words, if we can't plead our merits in order to be spared temporally, how could we even begin to think of pleading our own merits to be spared eternally? In other words, if we don't deserve to be spared fire and brimstone as was rained down upon Sodom, how could we possibly argue that we deserve to be spared the wrath of God which is to be poured out at the end of all things upon the wicked? And if even Abraham, if even Abraham could not intercede effectually for the people of Sodom, then presumably Abraham could not plead effectively for us with respect to the coming wrath either. If Abraham's logic didn't work with God with respect to Sodom, that God would be unjust 
to destroy this place and these people for the sake of the righteous living in there. God dismisses that argument and it's ineffectual before Him. Now how could someone like Abraham come and plead our merits before God with respect not only to temporal wrath, but eternal wrath? Clearly, this is a Bible, a section of the Bible, clearly, about a well-meaning but ineffectual intercessor. Which leads us then to hope for a better one, you know. One who also desires salvation. An intercessor who also desires justice. But an intercessor who comes with a better argument. An argument that prevails with God. Thanks be to God in the biblical storyline another intercessor comes. One who pleads for salvation. Jesus is concerned for salvation. For our salvation. As I said earlier, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus came to act as a priest. It says He always lives. Having died and risen again, He always lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God through Him. So what is he saying? What is he pleading as he intercedes for the salvation of those whom he came to seek and to save? It can't be it can't be asking God not to act justly for that would be against God's very nature. Jesus could not look at Genesis chapter 18 and see Abraham's failed intercession, which was presented to God on the basis of justice, and reason then, that, well, Abraham appealed to God on the basis of justice, and it was actually justice that drove God to destroy Sodom. Therefore, I will plead to God not to be just. God cannot act unjustly. It's against His nature. He tells us throughout the Scriptures that He hates injustice. And He hates injustice because He is not unjust. And so if Christ were to appeal to the Father to save us by not acting justly, that intercession would fail just as Abraham's intercession failed. 
Because like Abraham's intercession, it would proceed on faulty premises. It would be a bad argument. So somehow, Christ Jesus, who came to seek and to save the lost, who came into the world to save sinners, who makes intercession for sinners, needs to bring an argument that pleads not only for salvation, but an argument that pleads for justice. And an argument that pleads for salvation and pleads for justice in a sound way. But this sets up a predicament, you know. Because how can a just God pardon guilty sinners? How can a just judge acquit a guilty defendant? We read of this tension in Exodus chapter 34. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. All right, listen. Grace, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. All right, now listen. Justice, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty? You see the predicament? Iniquity and transgression and sin is guiltiness, and forgiving is clearing. So it almost seems like a self defeating statement. Clearing the guilty, but who will by no means clear the guilty? Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but by no means forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is the task of Christ Jesus to resolve this issue. To plead for both salvation and to plead for justice in a way that is sound, in a way that proceeds. in a coherent manner, in a manner that is co- consistent with who God is. This is the task of Christ Jesus. He Himself is concerned about justice. We need to not think of this as a father who is concerned about justice and a son who's not but knows that his father is and so makes the case. The way that little children who might want to get a kitten but know that their father doesn't come up with arguments that they think might be persuasive to their father. This is not the way that Jesus intercedes. We read even this morning in Acts chapter 17 and verse 31, 
that God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. God will judge the world in righteousness by Christ Jesus His Son. Isaiah chapter 11 verses 1 to 5 speak about a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see. In other words, not just make a face value superficial judgment. Or decide disputes by what his ears hear. He's not just going to go on hearsay. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the rod, the earth, with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Revelation 19 picks up on this imagery. Speaks about a rider on a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So what we see is that this is the desire of the Godhead, salvation and justice. And that a case must be made which will satisfy both the Father and the Son with respect to salvation and justice. How can this dilemma be resolved? Christ Jesus makes a different argument than Abraham. Christ Jesus, like Abraham, pleads for the salvation of the undeserving. But Christ Jesus doesn't plead... Their merits, in other words, they're not so bad, far be it from you to do such a thing. Rather, Christ Jesus pleads His own merits. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12 speak of this. When Christ appeared as a high priest, or an intercessor, of the good things that have come, Then through the great and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Christ Jesus doesn't come and say, you would be unjust to shed their blood. 
Nor, as this passage tells us, does Christ Jesus come and say, shed the blood of a lamb or a goat or a calf instead. Christ Jesus comes and says, shed my blood. And let's do justice and salvation. That prevailed with God. That's exactly what happened at Calvary. As God listened to the intercession of His Son, who said, let's do justice and salvation. Save the Sodomites, as it were. We're just as bad, just as undeserving. Save the Sodomites, so to speak. Save the wicked. Not because they deserve it. Not because they, ha- they live in cities where there are decent people. Not because they have good parents. Not because they work in a respectable place. Not for any of these things. As Abraham pleaded. Because I'm going to satisfy justice on their behalf. I'm going to present my own righteousness for them. And I'm going to absorb the penalty that they deserve for their sin. Let's do justice and salvation toward these people. Both. Let's forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. And let's by no means clear the guilty. Let me be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Again, we're speaking anthropopathically, but the conversation between the Father and the Son could have gone something like that, you know. This plan that God made from eternity past, the covenant of redemption, where the Father and the Son and the Spirit agreed together with respect to the salvation of sinners, it would have been something like a conversation as I just described. Where the father says something like, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And the son says, me neither. And the father says, but I'm, I'm going to do justice. And the son says, yeah, me too. And they work it out. They're going to do justice and salvation at the cross. The perfect spotless lamb who does not deserve to die bearing the just penalty of those who do deserve to die. Giving His spotlessness to those who are spotted. That we might no longer be spotted, but that we might be in Him spotless. That we might be saved. This is what the Father and the Son and the Spirit agreed to in the covenant of redemption. This is the argument that prevails. This is the intercession that prevails. Deal justly with them and save them through the cross. Thank God, thank God that there is a better intercessor than Abraham. Thank God, thank God that there is a better argument than that which Abraham presented to God. Thank God, 
Thanks be to God for giving us his son. Thanks be to God for this great salvation that we have in him, whereby he remains just, as Romans 3 tells us, and yet is also the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ.